The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. But isn't it nice to gather like we have and just learning this very straightforward map of the mind, how to work with our mind. It's really a training map. The difference between sort of somebody just doing mindfulness because they heard it's a good thing and somebody more systematically hearing what somebody who was really good at it figured out, because it's not just about being generally mindful, because I could be mindful of wearing socks all day, like just keeping that in mind, the present moment reality of wearing socks, I wouldn't become a wise person. So it's not just about mindfulness, there's this whole wisdom aspect like what to pay attention to. What do we do with that that wise, calm, continuous present moment awareness? What do we keep in mind? And so there is this awakening process and one of the things that has always been true over the centuries in the Buddhist tradition is gratitude that we have a set of instructions like what do we do with mindfulness? I mean, mindfulness is good, but you know, you can imagine a criminal or, you know, a power-hungry corporate type using mindfulness to sort of live out whatever their intentions are, like really paying attention in a continuous way so that I can become, you know, the grand poobah of the world and everyone else will be my minions. We were wondering what that word came from the other day. (laughs) Was it in the... Wizard of Oz? Were there minions in the Wizard of Oz? Maybe. Huh? What does it mean? A group of ten? Oh, so just a sort of a generic term for a group. Ah. So we have this set of instructions we've been learning. Um, It's linked to, uh, in the weekly email, you'll see the link to some resources if you want to read a little bit more about these 16 Steps, and a great book just came out you can get for the Dharma nerds in the community, Mindfulness of Breathing by Bhikkhu Analio. He's a Western uh, German Buddhist monk and one of the sort of amazing scholar practitioners around these days. He has a nice little cabin next to the Berry Center of Buddhist Studies where some of us have spent a lot of time. It's on the campus of IMS, Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts, there's the retreat center, the forest refuge, and the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, all sort of on this nice hill in the middle of Massachusetts. It's kind of one of our grandmother institutions in this early Buddhist um, lineage that we practice here at Common Ground. And this uh, book is really one of the better books on these Buddhist instructions on mindfulness of breathing. And so I've been talking lately you know, it's uh, the 16 instructions really just go from working with a gross mind, an ordinary mind, all the way to working with the most settled, clear uh, mind that has a, a just really one intention. I really want to understand the way it is. All the other t- intentions in the mind have been sort of abandoned. So that's the more subtle mind with a really pure intention. I just want to understand. 
any moment of our life, we're going to be somewhere along the spectrum from having a really wise, settled, pure mind to having an ordinary mind, right? And it can change very quickly. We can have a very, you know, relatively settled mind and then some disturbing memory or thought, and then we'll be back in kind of an ordinary state of consciousness. And we can be in an ordinary state of consciousness, and then in another moment, realize the way it is, that it's just an ordinary state of consciousness. And if the mind's been trained in just a matter of a moment, we can be in a more grounded, settled, clear-minded state. So even though we're learning this map, you may feel, oh, I can't even get one breath in, where the mind, the awareness is continuous through that in-breath and out-breath. But you might find that at some moments your mind is really settled and you're experiencing just joy, that lightness of being naturally. You didn't make that happen, but it's just there. So at that moment, you wouldn't want to go train in a more gross way. You'd want to train right where the mind is at. So one of the reasons we're learning the whole map even if you consider yourself a brand new meditator, is learning the map, you'll know how to practice with your mind wherever it is, however it's showing up in that moment. right? So in the weeks ahead, you know, when I'm teaching, I'm going to be working us through, and you can see it will feel a little bit like a rush, right? but as we go through, I won't be spending as much time with the first couple steps, just so over time you'll learn the map. But that's, that's not necessarily how you should practice at home. You might just stick with the first two instructions or you might just go to where you feel in the map your mind is at, wherever that place might be. Sort of settled, very settled, not so settled at all. And in a way, a lot of people think of the mindfulness of breathing instructions as one of the simple instructions the Buddha gave on meditation. But it's not really true because... In these 16 steps, the Buddha is not really teaching us about how to go beyond distraction. So all of that work of putting aside the hindrances, that's how we talk about it in sort of early Buddhism, right? Just having a basic human grounded mind means we've put aside temporarily greed and anger and dullness and restlessness and we're not circling with doubt. So that's a lot of work. But that's where the mindfulness of breathing instructions begin. Because when we're being asked, like we are with instruction number one, you know, breathing in short, breathing in a short breath, one understands I'm just breathing in a short breath. Breathing out a short breath, one understands I'm breathing out a short breath. Or breathing in a long breath, one understands I'm bringing it, breathing in a long breath. Breathing out that I'm breathing out a long breath. So just that basic comprehension, right? there's enough continuity of awareness, enough unwavering present moment awareness with the breath that the wisdom can comprehend, oh yeah, this is a relatively long breath, gross breath. This is a relatively short, refined, easy breath. Right? That That's not so easy for us to notice. Like, Today, how many moments have we actually been able to comprehend the physicality of the breathing process in a clear way? We tend not to notice ordinary things like the breath. This is from Ajahn Sumedho. He's a wonderful, he's another Western monk. 
one of the senior Western monks in early Buddhism. In uh, one of his early books, he had a chapter on anapanasati. Sati means mindfulness, anapana, breathing in, breathing out. So mindfulness of breathing in and breathing out. And in this chapter he writes, We don't try to make the breath long or short or control it in any way, but to simply stay with the normal inhalation and exhalation. The breath is not something that we create or imagine. It is a natural process of our bodies that continues as long as life lasts, whether we concentrate on it or not. So it is an object that is always present. We can turn to it at any time. We don't have to have any qualifications to watch your breath. You do not even need to be particularly intelligent. All we have to do is to be content with and aware of one inhalation and exhalation. Wisdom does not come from studying great theories and philosophies, but from observing the ordinary. And that's really essential because Buddhism, the teachings of the Buddha, can get heady, you know, because (laughs) some of us have joked, you know, after the time of the Buddha, early on, Buddhism was decentralized, right? The nuns and monks, they'd wander they really weren't allowed to stay, but in the centuries after the time of the Buddha, it got more and more institutionalized. The monasteries got sort of established as set places where they'd be. And the teachings also started to get systematized. And you can imagine a bunch of concentrated people with a lot of time in their hands doing endless rifts on these sort of basic teachings that the Buddha taught and then getting protective about the riffs and how your riff is a little different than my riff and all of that for 2,600 years, <laughs> right? So it gets heady. That's, you know, it may be especially a male thing, that kind of spatial, abstract kind of, I'm not sure, but uh, it certainly has been more of a male tradition in sort of the institutional sense at least. And so there are repercussions for for that. So it's really important for us to understand that the essence of what the Buddha is talking about, and this is why more and more, you know, we talk about ourselves as early people interested in the early Buddhist teachings, which I'm not saying the later schools aren't good, because every useful school of Buddhism has had to sort of do this reformation where they drop the institutional and they start over, right? So that's sort of what Common Ground is trying to follow in those footsteps of people who like getting back to there was a human being who seemed to have a lot of insight about the human mind and had a knack for articulating what he had come to understand in a very deep way And we're trying to use that basic human articulation of how to handle having a mind, or a mind and body, we should say, so that we can be more engaged, more intimate with our life, not not animated by greed, anger, delusion, but instead animated by love and compassion in our lives and contentment. Like somebody was saying uh, last, I think it was in the half-day retreat, you know, being learning to be content with what we have. 
I mean, when's the last time we really made a study of like, yeah, my body sitting right now may not be exactly the sensations the way I want them to be, but I can be content because certainly it could be worse. And I might not have my favorite sweater on, but I could practice being content with the sweater that I have on or the pants that I'm wearing or the socks that I'm wearing or the people that I'm around. You know, some of my favorite people may not be here. But it could be like we can be content with the people that are here. And it's just a choice, like aversive, content. And if we look at it that way, I mean, it's it's pretty obvious that being content with the conditions is a more useful attitude. And it's not even that it keeps us from doing stuff that makes the world a better place. But wasting our energy with the story it shouldn't be this way when it is this way, that's a waste of energy. And so this point that Ajahn Sumedho is making about the whole path is really about the wisdom that arises from being intimate with the way it is. And we can't really be intimate with the present moment unless we're really willing to let it in. Right? So we start with the breath, which is neutral or ordinary. Breathing in is not a miraculous thing. It's an ordinary thing. Right? So it's, it's difficult initially to train the mind to be intimate, to really let in, to show up for something that's actually ordinary. Because the habit is to ignore it. This is uh, Ajahn Sumedho again. The rhythm of our normal breathing is not interesting or compelling. It is tranquilizing. And most beings aren't used to tranquility. Most people like the idea of peace, but find the actual experience of it disappointing or frustrating. (laughs) There's a lot of wisdom in that statement. It's like, have you ever had that thought, you know, okay, for my time off, you know, I'm going to, I'm just going to do this peaceful thing. But it's not easy to do. We actually have to train ourselves to do nothing. I know it sounds ridiculous, but it's really true. I mean, a lot of our sitting practice is learning how to be. And it's kind of interesting that, you know, a 61-year-old guy has to train himself just to be, not as opposed to be neurotically doing stuff, worrying, planning, moving, in ways that aren't functional or necessary, right? It's hard to drop. And the more we learn how to put it all down, the more we know how to pick it all up. So again, a lot of people misunderstand the practice and generally the thrust of the Buddhist teachings because all they hear is putting it all down. And then they wonder, well, who's going to take out the garbage? Or who's going to make the world a better place? Or feed the kids or whatever, right? But the idea is what actually allows us to pick everything up? And we don't know how to pick stuff up until we realize that it can all be put down. It's really that simple. We don't really understand what's going on here. So every time we pick stuff up, we get engaged, we respond, we think, we do. It's coming from this place of not really understanding. And the the sort of short way of describing that not-so-skillful way of understanding is 
self-centeredness. We're always interpreting everything in terms of our self-centered notions. And when we do that, we get a world that's like this, messy, and a lot of unnecessary suffering. So we're getting at the root cause, misunderstanding, right? Presuming that this moment, this reality, my life, is something that it's not. And then acting from that ignorant position that it's something that it's not. And so we're, one of the sort of powerful things the Buddha discovered is that by learning how to put things down, then the mind, the wisdom of the mind can begin to understand better the nature of the body and mind. And in understanding the nature of the body and the mind better, we understand the world. Because the world is just the cumulative, you know, the collective body and mind. That's what the world is. It's the activity of body and mind, you know, material and mental. That's what it is. It's the stance. And we totally misunderstand the stance between what we call the mind or mental and the world of material. We think we know, and that's called fundamentalism, right? Whatever you think you know, that's your fundamentalist belief. And we hopefully begun to see how fundamentalism, fixed views, it's really the symptom of the messiness of our world. But it's one of the real symptoms. And it's good to catch it that way or to know it that way because it can be a feedback mechanism as we observe others, as we observe ourselves. Oh, my mind seems pretty fixed about this. I may be right on some level, but the fixedness, the attachment, isn't helpful. It's a problem. So how to act with the perspectives, the understandings that we have without going as far as being fixed or attached. It would be a different world. right? We'd listen to each other, for example. One of the reasons we can justify not listening to each other because I have a fixed idea. And so because of that fixedness, whether I think it or not, your view doesn't matter because it's not the same as my fixed view. So we may not see ourselves dismissing others, but if we have attached views, fixed views, any kind of certainty, then we have dismissed others. We have put them down in a way. So that's a little bit of a kind of riff on what I wanted to talk about. Let me finish this section. So Ajahn Smeda says, they desire stimulation, right? Instead of enjoying peace, we desire stimulation, something that will draw them into themselves. With mindfulness of breathing, we stay with an object that is quite neutral. We don't have any strong feelings of like or dislike for our breath. And just note the beginning of an inhalation, its middle and its end. Then the beginning of an exhalation, its middle and end. The gentle rhythm of breath being slower slower than the rhythm of thought takes us to tranquility. 
we begin to stop thinking. But we don't try to get anything from meditation, to get samadhi, to get jhana, because when the mind is trying to achieve or attain things, rather than just being humbly content with one breath, then it doesn't slow down and become calm, and we become frustrated. So now we have these first eight steps. The first four are really about healing the mind and body. And it's really the mind learning how to be peaceful with the body. So for that to happen, the mind has to be intimate, aware of the breath and then later the whole body. And it has to be okay with that feeling, that experience of breath and body. And that's what we're doing for the first four instructions. This powerful healing integration of mind and body. It's like in this little relatively safe place, we're learning how to engage the world. You know, so instead of as a white person wanting to deal with racism or other kinds of social injustice, envir- the environmental crisis, right? Instead of me getting interested in that, I'm going to first and foremost learn how to engage the world by bringing my mind into my body and to the breath in the body. I'm going to learn how to show up there because if I can't show up there, I'm not going to be able to show up with my spouse, with my cat, with my neighborhood, with the communities that I'm part of or any kind of bigger issue in the world. I'm not saying we should avoid all that other work. I'm just saying that we need to get good at showing up. So let's start with something ordinary and relatively neutral that's right here. And the breath is a little subset of the world, right? This natural process of breathing is just a little part of this great dance we call our world. So let's just see if we can be with it for one half breath in, one half breath out. And when we get good at that, we call that the happiness of seclusion or the happiness of a mind that knows how to be intimate with experience. Now, this is a relatively simple subset of experience, but it's a start, right? And that has a particular flavor, that happiness, which we could call a pervasive calm, embodied calm. It doesn't mean all of the problems in our body have gone away. It means the mind is okay with the reality of the body. And the reason it's okay, because it's gotten close and it's practiced not reacting. So that's the calm, is the mind is close, the awareness is close, and not reacting. And that feels calm. The body feels calm. And, And now the mind is starting to trust something. It's trusting like, maybe I can just let things be. Just the beginning stages. And that's the arising of the fifth instruction, joy, to notice joy. What is joy? I mean, it's amazing. We've lived, all of us, as long as we've lived. When is the last time you ask yourself experientially, what do I know about joy? 
and what are the causes for joy and what blocks joy. I mean, now, why wouldn't we be interested in that? Why wouldn't we even be teaching preschoolers about what joy is, how to find it, what gets in the way of it? I mean, it's just truly, it's astounding how we haven't taken responsibility for some of these basic facts of life, like joy matters. It's hard to be a a halfway decent human being if we're not touching into joy regularly. It really is. Because if somebody's experiencing chronic pain, whether it's coming from oppressive conditions or physical pain, chronic pain, or mental illness, or whatever the source of the ongoing absence of joy might be, well, that person, it's like a starving person. Before they can do any good, they need a meal. They need safety so they can get good sleep, right? And then even on a higher level, human beings need to touch into joy. We need to feel that basic um, sense of trust that when I just allow everything to move, everything to be, I don't have to be in this moment in a defended or armored state. I can be a human being with the armor down, the defenses down, and then that's how we experience joy. I remember once, I'm sure, I mean, not just once, but one of the favorite things, I haven't had to, been able to do this too much, but enough time swimming in the ocean where it's actually warm enough. I lived on the West Coast for a while, North, Northern California, where it's not really warm enough. But I lived uh, on the East Coast enough of the time in my life to go swimming in the summer. And there's something about the surf and the bubbles and the kind of getting pushed around and just sort of having enough confidence to sort of be, to let the life of the surf and the bubbles and the waves and the sound and the giggling of the people you're swimming with, just to let it all happen, right? Just that, and probably, hopefully, we can all remember times where we put the defenses down and we're just playing. I can remember one-on-one basketball with good friends where it wasn't about winning. It was just about playing. And it was so much fun. And the laughter that happens. Or, you know, with a partner and the kind of play we have with partners sometimes. Where it's really light and flowing. And there is very little need for defense or control. Right? Every once in a while maybe with a pet. Right? But we want to know that lightness, that lightness of the energies of the body, the mind, not experiencing friction, the friction of armor, the friction of defensiveness, the friction of fear, the friction of needing to be in control. Because that's the beginning of what we call joy, rapture. It's ordinary mind-body, what's here already, but without any overlay of friction and or resistance or control. So life is just moving, the life of the body and mind, physicality and mentality. It's moving without restriction. And then the mind notices that movement without restriction as joy. 
and we can get good at it. And when we transition from the calm, pervasive calm in the body to that fifth instruction, we're really confidently believing from past experience that there's some, that this free movement of body and mind is something, it's kind of a birthright for human beings or any beings probably. That, But we just have to start noticing it not noticing where the body or mind is tight, but noticing where there's no the absence of tightness, the absence of control, absence of defensiveness. And it could be initially just like a, a bubbly, vibratory movement in the mind or body, somewhere in our experience, just an unrestricted lightness. Lightness because it's the repressive holding that makes weight feel weightful makes things feel bound up. So wherever you feel that. And it's really interesting how this can bloom. Like often it's through an experience of kind of a more wholesome, natural love. Friendliness, compassion, appreciation, forgiveness. Because love is that quality of unrestricted belonging, including right it that's that's kind of a nice technical defer, definition of love is when the mind is relating to something there's no it's like a flow instead of a definition and we always feel i always feel a little bit sort of put off when someone is sort of defining the love between us <laughs> right cuz it isn't it isn't a thing, it's the absence of that definition, right? When you really feel friendliness as an actual experience, love as an actual experience, right? It's it's something is happening, right? And it's really the absence of like me needing to control what's happening, that friendliness. Like you have a moment with a cashier or whatever it might be, a neighbor chatting. It just feels like something was moving precisely because we didn't, nobody projected something to get in the way. You never return my rake. (laughs) Or something like that, you know. And then that, well, I can't just be in this intimate flow with you. And it, it doesn't have to be special. You could be talking about the weather, right? Like the form, the outer form isn't important. What's important is that there's a sense of something moving and nobody, there's not, you're not experiencing fear about that movement. And so when there's more and more of that movement, then the heart really begins to trust life, like in a more generalized way. And that's how that joy, that bright, free, vibrant, rapturous quality matures into what we call sukha is the Pali word ease. So the next set of four instructions, joy, ease, observing mental activity, the calming of mental activity. Again, it's just a brilliant, like somebody telling us what and how to pay attention because it's a beautiful system. Check it out. Notice the joy, notice how it matures to ease, 
notice how easy it is to observe mental activity from this dispassionate point of view because the ease really establishes a sense of contentment. And then you can observe mental activity. Now you don't have a problem with a thinking mind, a perceiving mind, a mind with different feelings, liking this, liking not liking that. Because from the point of view of that contentment, the mind is okay with thoughts. And this is the radical thing. That's actually what quiets the thinking mind down. Not trying to quiet your thinking mind down. But being okay with the thoughts in this dispassionate way turns out to be the trick for the calming of the mind, the thinking mind. Right? And this is only halfway through, right? The 16 instructions. So I'll leave it here. The kids will be in in a moment, but maybe there's time for one comment or question from your practice you'd like to share with the group. Emil, you want to go? Thanks, Mark. Got a very, very helpful beginning to the 16 instructions. Uh, I just read Under the Bodhi Tree by Bhikkhu Purukasa, and uh, he, he, almost the entire book is about dependent origination, and uh, he seems to be saying that clinging and craving is a problem if it's from a place of ignorance, but that if you are starting from a place that's not ignorance and you go through the sense media and contact and feeling, and you get to craving and clinging. If it's not from a place of ignorance, then it's all good. Right, but it wouldn't be clinging and craving at that point. It would be activity, right? See, because of contact and feeling tone, as long as we're sort of in this mind-body space, there will be desire, you know, this kind of desire in that neutral not taking desire personally, not being ignorant about desire. Desire is just life energy then, right? And so what animates our life when there's not the ignorance conditioning desire? Love does. Like like how we use our life energy to take care of our life, to take care of everybody else. But I wouldn't call it craving and clinging. That's right. He calls it wise aspirations. He gives it a different name. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Emil. Yeah, we have time. Yeah, Haya. Mine is just a quick question on, you know, technique or whatever you might want to call it in breathing. Um, for a long time, you know, I've you know concentrated on breathing, but um, in yoga a number of years ago, I was taught this alternate, you know, nostril breathing. Is that helping, hurting? I mean, for me, it feels helpful, but am I putting too much energy then into being aware of the alternate uh, breathing. Well, there are a lot of really wonderful breathing practices, but this is not that. This is a training for the mind. And part of what the mind has to deal with is that we're here in this world. So the breath and the whole body awareness is kind of our way of staying connected. Because otherwise meditative trainings can actually take one away, right? There's a whole school of meditation practices that are about seclusion or retreating. But we're sticking with the breath because we want to understand how to be in this mind-body world and to be skillful and to be free in this mind-body world, which means we're not controlling it. 
So breath practices, the yogic breath practices are about using, it's kind of like uh, a lot of the Qigong and a lot of the other um, healing modalities. They're really, they have a different um, objective, which is the healing of energetic imbalances. Now, a lot of healing happens in this sort of meditative process, but it's not the intention. The intention is to want to understand. And there's something about the purity of that intention that really delivers. Because if you're trying to have a good experience, that attachment to wanting a good experience actually gets in the way of a deep understanding. It limits the practice. Even really skillful uses of breath meditation or breath practice, you know, it's limited in that way because its objective is limited. I want to feel more balanced or I want to feel relaxed or I want to sort of work out this kink I have in my energetic system or whatever. I did a lot of pranayama in my early years of practice. I think it was really helpful for me. So, like I said, this is a very deep training. Awakening, in a way, is the most subtle practice for a person to do. Whether you see it in terms of Buddhist practices or not, this deeper releasing from the ignorance of separation is the most subtle. But there are a lot of grosser practices that we'll need, like including learning a skill so we can earn enough money to have the privilege to put some time aside to do our meditation practice, right? Or any other number of things we need to do on a grosser level so we have some time and inclination to do this more subtle practice. This is a subtle practice all the way through the 16 steps. And you can imagine like if someone's going through a divorce, for example, all of a sudden breathing in, experiencing joy, breathing out, experiencing joy may not be so relevant to that person when they don't know what they're going to do with their life and who they are after a breakup of many years. Right? And so they just have to deal with the big thing. So remember that we need a, a lot of tools to be a healthy, balanced human being. These tools that we're learning here at Comic Ground are, generally speaking, more subtle. I mean, we have different classes in different ways. But the 16 steps are really about the awakening process. Can I just make a comment? And this follows on uh, highest question, but I've been meaning to tell you this before, but last week you gave just the greatest metaphor, at least I thought it was the greatest metaphor, about watching our breath. And you said, if you're sitting somewhere and you think you hear a sound, you hear a bird, you'll, you'll just pay all, you'll just focus on that and put your attention to that bird, that sound. And uh, we do that all the time. And that's the way you said we are to investigate our breath. And I just thought that that just really struck me as, oh, yeah, it's looking for where's that breath? Where is it coming from? Yeah, yeah. Can we be as interested in the breath, even though it's a neutral thing, as we are in any other aspect? This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.